call this meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing together, and we welcome our testimony today from those who are here to give it, and I want to welcome Gene Shaheen, who will be serving as my co-chair of this hearing. Appreciate the other members that, that are here and that will come. This is a very important hearing, particularly the people in front of us, because we're talking about all of you and can give you a chance to talk about yourself, but it's important to the country as well because you've been nominated for positions that are extremely important. To represent the United States of America as principal legal advisor to the U.S. Department of State on legal matters, to U.S. economic, political, and security interests of international economic policies that, man, that mandate open markets, and ensuring safety and security of our diplomat, diplomats in 275 United States posts. Our first nominee today is Thomas L. Carter of South Carolina, next to my home state of Georgia. We welcome you, Mr. Carter. To be representative of the United States to the Council of International Civil Aviation Organizations with the rank of ambassador. A tremendous post, and Mr. Carter has tremendous experience as a pilot in the military, pilot commercially, and a private pilot as well. And we welcome you here and your family that are here today. Ms. Jennifer Newstead is nominated for legal advisor to the Department of State. Ms. Newstead is a partner in the law firm of Davis, Polk, and Wardwell, where she has a global practice representing clients in cross-border regulatory enforcement and litigation matters. Sounds like well-qualified for the State Department. Ms. Newstead previously served as General Counsel of the Office of Management and Budget, Principal Deputy Assistant of the Attorney General and Department of the Justice Department of Legal Policy, and Associate Counsel to the President. She also clerked for Justice William Breyer, United States Supreme Court, and is a graduate of Yale University and Harvard University, two pretty well-known schools in the Northeast that don't just let you out easy. Mr. Manisha, Mrs. Manisha Singh is nominated to be Assistant Secretary of State for Business Affairs and Economic Affairs. Ms. Singh is Chief Counsel and Senior Policy Advisor to U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan. Is Dan here? Let me say, I'll make sure and introduce him when he gets here. Dan is a tremendous member of the United States Senate representing the state of Alaska. And she worked with him. She worked with a fine senator, and she must have done a fine job because he's pretty temperamental about stuff like that. <laughs> but we'll, I'll call on him when he gets here, for sure, I promise. She earned an LLM in International Legal Studies from American University and College of Law, a Juris Doctor, and from the United States, from, and from the University of Florida College of Law and Bachelor of Administration from the University of Miami. Mr. Michael Evanoff is nominated to be Assistant Secretary for Diplomatic Security. Mr. Evanoff is Vice President of Asset Protection and Security and International Stores of Walmart Stores, a position he's held since 2014. And if anybody's had experience in security and retail, it would be somebody representing Walmart. And he has already told me that he helped them open a store in Nigeria, a place if any of you have ever been and you understand how important security is, Nigeria is a place you really need to have security. So we welcome you being here today and look forward to hearing your testimony. Mr. Evanoff is Vice President of Asset Protection and Security at International Walmart Stores, and he's held that position for the last five years. Previously, he served as Chief Security Officer at Coca-Cola, an Atlanta company, which I'm very proud of, and in Switzerland and Greece, and a Special Agent in the Bureau of Diplomatic Security from 1985 to 2011, holding senior posts with Overseas, overseas Security Advisory Council, NATO officers, of the security position, State Department, and details of eight United States missions overseas. He also is a Deputy Security Litigation Officer for the United States European Command in Germany. It's a pleasure for me to re recognize my ranking member, who will co-chair this hearing with me, Ms. Jean Seen from New Hampshire, for any uh, uh, remarks you may have. Um, just to thank all of you for your willingness to serve, congratulations on your nominations, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
In the introduction, I've pretty much introduced all of you in your background, so I'm going to leave the rest of it to, for you to say about yourself, except to tell you the following. You'll have up to five minutes to tell us your story. Your, your prepared remarks will be submitted for the record and made permanent, as will any responses you have to make today. We thank you for your willingness to serve your country. After your opening testimony, we'll open the floor to the members of the commi committee to ask any questions that they might have. We'll start with you, Mr. Carter. Welcome. And by the way, please introduce any family members that are here or acknowledge the, them if they are here. Yes, sir. Well, I'm, I'm very honored today to have Ms. Mary Graham from Charleston, South Carolina, joining me here and uh, the leading lady in my life. Uh, Chairman Isaacson, Ranking Member Shaheen, and members of the committee, it's truly an honor for me to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee for United States Representative to the Council of the International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO, as it's commonly known. I'm very grateful to the President, Secretary Tillerson, and Ambassador Haley for their confidence and support. And I must admit that I've attended many hearings like this over the years, but it's truly humbly to finally be the, uh, the nominee at the table. Mr. Chairman, since its creation at the Chicago Convention in 1944, ICAO has been a critical partner of the United States in efforts to promote the development of our crucial aviation industry and keep pace with the evolution of its safety and security requirements. Throughout its existence, ICAO has served as an effective forum in which the nations of the world can find common approaches to complex aviation challenges, such as emerging technologies, airspace management and air navigation, and environmental issues, including aircraft noise and engine emissions. Unfortunately, over the past decades, we have witnessed an increase in terrorism, cyber attacks, and the rapid spread of pandemic disease, all of which have emerged to threaten civil aviation. IKO is working to mitigate these threats, but it can and must do more. IKO's member states look to the United States for leadership on these and other aviation-related issues, and if confirmed, I will reinforce that leadership to promote American national security and strengthen aviation safety. Certainly, if anyone ever nominated for this position could fully appreciate the value of such a concept, I hope that it might be me. My life of 65 years has been a unique combination of military and civilian flying, key positions dealing with national security policy, and private sector experience relating to aviation-related products. I had the incredible experience as an Air Force pilot to command heavy jets internationally while flying both numerous peacetime humanitarian missions as well as into an active combat zone with dozens of paratroopers aboard. Later, when realizing my Air Force Reserve flying career might be coming to an end, I signed on to U.S. Airways where I flew separate, three separate aircraft types and eventually upgraded to captain of the Boeing 737. Interspersed with this flying, I had the incredible experience to serve Republican leader Bob Dole as a staffer dealing with national security issues. Those Senate years were absolutely some of the most report, rewarding of my life, and I coordinated critically important issues between the Senate leadership, armed services, appropriations, and yes, this very committee chaired by, by Senator Pell. In my most recent work, I was very active with the major associations dealing with international and domestic aviation issues, and due to my personal flying experiences mentioned earlier, was frequently sought out for expertise on policy positions. All of this to say is that if confirmed by this committee, I hope that my life's work has prepared me to represent this great country and all of you in a very dignified and knowledgeable manner. Mr. Chairman, thank you for this opportunity to answer any questions your committee members might have. Thank you. Carter. Ms. Newstead. 
Well, thank you, Chairman Isaacson and Ranking Member Shaheen and members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before you as the President's nominee to serve as legal advisor to the Department of State. I want to thank President Trump and Secretary Tillerson for their confidence in me. Several members of my family are here today. My husband, Alexander Mishkin, our children, Henry and Charlotte Mishkin, of whom we are both very proud. <laughs> A good-looking group. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And my parents, uh, Dr. Gillian McLean Newstead and Dr. Graham Newstead, and my sister, Dr. Caroline McLean, are all here as well. As a personal introduction, I was born on an army base where my father was stationed as a doctor during the Vietnam War. My mother has spent her medical career pioneering new technologies to diagnose cancer in women. And though I am the first lawyer in my family, I'm actually the third generation of women to pursue a professional career. My grandmother, who was born in 1914, was also a doctor. So my family's example has inspired me to seek out opportunities for public service throughout my career. If confirmed, it would be my honor to lead the team of more than 250 career lawyers and professionals who make up the Office of the Legal Advisor, a group that is deservedly recognized as the most talented collection of international lawyers in the world. The mission of the office is simple but critical, to provide rigorous and objective legal advice to the Secretary of State and other officials as they carry out the foreign policy of the United States. The office also plays a unique role supporting the department's mission to promote our values, the rule of law, and respect for human rights and democracy around the world. In the 23 years since I graduated from Yale Law School, I have served as a law clerk to two distinguished jurists, Judge Lawrence Silberman and Justice Stephen Breyer, and in senior positions at the Department of Justice and in the White House Counsel's Office. I also served, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, as General Counsel of the Office of Management and Budget where I work closely with the general counsels of agencies across the government on a range of initiatives impacting national security and foreign policy. Through that role, I gained insight into the broad scope of the State Department's operations and worked on treaty issues and humanitarian relief efforts. <coughs> and in my 20 years of private practice at a global law firm, I have acted as a counselor, a litigator, and a negotiator on a range of international issues. If confirmed, those experiences should serve me well in carrying out the legal advisor's role in the negotiation and ratification of treaties and international agreements and in representing the United States before international tribunals. But most importantly, each of these roles has strengthened my conviction that a lawyer advising a critical function of government must have an unwavering commitment to integrity and independence. The most effective lawyers are pragmatic problem solvers who identify the range of lawful options available to policymakers. But at the same time, a lawyer must be willing to speak hard truths and identify limits where law and circumstances require. If confirmed, I would seek at all times to act with fidelity to the Constitution and the rule of law, and I would also be guided by the wisdom articulated by one of my mentors that the demands of honor have special application to government service. I thank you for your consideration, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Ms. Newstern. Ms. Singh? Chairman Isaacson, Ranking Member Shaheen, and members of the committee, thank you for your time today. I am humbled and grateful to be considered to serve as the Assistant Secretary of State for Economic and Business Affairs. I want to express my gratitude to President Trump and Secretary Tillerson for the confidence and trust they have placed in me. I am particularly honored to appear before this committee. I had the privilege of being on the staff for several years. 
I want to thank my friends for being here today. My family wasn't able to make it here for the hearing, but they're watching from home, and I'd like to tell you about them. My parents both grew up in small, rural villages in India. Neither set of my grandparents were able to read or write. My mom and dad knew that an education was the key to moving forward. We moved from India to Florida, where my father earned a PhD at the University of Florida. I was two years old when I came here. My parents impressed on me and my sister how lucky we were to be immigrants to this great country. Here in America, a young girl could grow up to be anything she wanted. Never have I believed this more than as I sit before you today. If confirmed, I would be the first woman installed to lead this bureau. I have experience there, previously managing a division as a deputy assistant secretary. It's composed of over 200 talented men and women in Washington, as well as economic officers posted all over the world. In an era of global competition, we have to make sure that U.S. companies have every opportunity to succeed. The Bureau plays a key role in a healthy American economy by ensuring a level playing field for our companies. We have to make sure that economic resources are fully employed as carrots and sticks in the interest of American stability and prosperity. I would utilize both my government and private sector experience to successfully lead this Bureau. My legislative service has afforded me the privilege of hearing the concerns of everyday Americans. If confirmed, I will work to make sure that everyone in the Bureau is proud to be a member of my team and to make sure that we put the interests of the American people first. I thank you again, and I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you very much. Mr. Evanoff. Chairman Isaacson, Ranking Member Shaheen, and members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee to the Department of State's Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Diplomatic Security. I'm grateful for the confidence that the President and Secretary Tillerson have placed in me, and I'm humbled by the designation of becoming the only second DS Special Agent in the Bureau's 101 history, 101 year history, to come through the ranks and to be nominated to serve as Assistant Secretary. As a former senior DS agent for 26 years, I want to thank you for your continuing unwavering support for both the department and diplomatic security. I'm very proud to be associated with the outstanding men and women who labored tirelessly to protect America's diplomatic facilities, critical information, and most importantly, American lives. They also conduct extensive, important investigations necessary to keep our country safe. I first want to thank my wife, Kate, my soulmate, Kate, my son, Luke, who couldn't be with us today because <laughs> he would tear the place apart if he was here. He's two and a half. I'd also like to introduce to you my sister-in-law, Karen Evanoff, and my niece, Olivia Evanoff, and my uh, nephew, Tommy Evanoff. I also like to introduce my brother-in-law, Laurent De Winter, and his son Max De Winter, and my mother-in-law, my great mother-in-law, Lenore Milner, and her uh, friend and partner, uh, John Gacy. They all came down from uh, from uh, North Carolina and Groton, Connecticut. So, 
I, I, my thoughts today, though, are also with my parents. My Walter and Lyle Evanoff, who first showed me the value here in the District of Columbia. So I want to thank them and know that I'm with them in, uh, on this special day. I first joined diplomatic security 32 years ago in 1985 in the wake of the Beirut bombings and the subsequent approval of Admiral Ami, Ami, Bobby Inman's recommendations calling for the creation of more robust and professional diplomatic security service for the Department of State. The Inman report identified the need for increased funding for stronger overseas embassies and consulates and led to additional hiring of special agents, security engineers, couriers, and other key positions. Thanks in large part, Chairman, to the work of this Senate committee right here, the recommendations were formally authorized by Congress one year later to form the Anonymous Diplomatic Security Anti-Terrorism Act of 1986. In the three decades since my hiring as part of the Inman tranche of DS Special Agents, I have served in eight overseas postings, four of which were designated as high threat. Among other things, established the first DS liaison position for US Military Regional Command and managed the largest spy case and damage assessment in NATO history. I was also implemented designing the post 9-11 inf informant walk-in program at our embassy in Islamabad with, that contributed to the capture of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. My work with the department combined with my private sector experience leading international security programs for two Fortune 100 companies has given me a unique perspective on DS inherent strengths and challenges, as well as future security changes that may be necessary to ensure the continued conduct of American diplomacy in a safe and effective manner. With support and continued guidance from members of this committee and Congress as a whole, one of my goals will be enable stronger and more effective collaboration with our colleagues throughout the department, the military, the IC community, and this body here. This enhanced co collaboration needs to be both strategic and operational, and we need established key performance indicators to measure the value of the work with our partners in protecting our people and facilities worldwide. In a world of rapid technology, technology and innovation and constantly evolving cyber and terrorism threats, the appropriate sharing of actionable security information also needs to remain a top priority for DS. If confirmed, I intend to closely monitor our operational and strategic planning objectives with the department and with the intelligence community when it comes to opening and maintaining posts in high threat and potentially hostile environments. There needs to be clear goals and objectives if we are to consistently and successfully operate in hostile environments with little or ineffective host government support. I also put forth special focus on continued overall refinement of security training for the Department of State employees. This includes intensified specialized training for all DS agents on ongoing expansion of the foreign affairs counter FAT course for all government employees working overseas under the Chief of Mission Authority. It also includes the completion of the Department's Foreign Affairs Security Training Center, FACSI, at Fort Pickett, Virginia. Finally, if confirmed, I hope, also hope to strengthen the organization's morale. 
Everyone in DS, whether part of the Foreign Service, the civil service, or a contractor, deserves to be recognized for the vital role they play on a daily basis. There needs to be a broader recognition of appreciation for the fact that we are one team with one mission. Thank you for your time and consideration, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you, Mr. Avanoff, and we'll open the floor for five-minute questions, and I'm going to open real quickly. Mr. Avanoff, you mentioned Fort Pickett. Yes, sir. As a good senator and a good politician, I can't help but tell you there are two great facilities in Georgia called Fletsy One, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and the Guardian Center outside of Perry, Georgia, which are two outstanding situational training areas for law enforcement, anti-terrorism activities, military activities, and the like. So when you're looking at Fort Pickett and all the others, also don't forget those two. They're great facilities. Absolutely, sir. I was trained at uh, Fletsy in Georgia, so I know exactly what they provide. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Mr. Carter, I'm scared to death with what North Korea is doing. You and I had a conversation yesterday that scared me worse last night when I, when I started thinking about our conversation. I hadn't thought about where those missiles are going between the time Kim Jong-un launches them and they fall in the South China Sea or wherever. Will your agency, will your representation on this organization of civil aviation have some voice in bringing about requirements on countries to notify civil aviation on any use of intercontinental ballistic missiles or other missiles that might be done in testing on a testing basis? Mr. Chairman, this is probably one of the very most sensitive uh, top issues that's going to be handled uh, at the Council starting on the 30th of October this month. Launching ballistic missiles into international airspace is absolutely unacceptable. It's an enormous risk to civil aviation. As a person who uh, commanded uh, multi-engine jets, the, the worst thing I can think of is be sitting at altitude and see a ballistic missile come through your airspace. And through my research and preparation for this, it's clear that one, one of his ballistic missile launches did indeed go through the flight path of an international flight. You are supposed to issue notices to airmen anytime you're doing any type of missile testing like that in international airspace. So uh, I know that the mission at ICAO right now is working closely with the council members to deal with this issue, and they've made it a priority for the 30 October meeting. And if confirmed, I guarantee you this will be one of my top priorities, and I will certainly work with you and this committee to make sure that this is being dealt with. Well, thank you very much. That's of the utmost importance, and I think we have to be – I had not thought about that risk until we talked yesterday, but it's obviously huge and a big one. Yes, sir. Ms. Singh, you're going to be an advisor on economic affairs. Is that not correct? Yes, Senator. I think soft power is the most powerful tool the United States has to win friends and influence enemies around the world, and certainly far better than fighting wars all the time if you can help it. Millennium Sat Challenge Corporation and other things like that have proven that good investment in foreign countries to be our friends and helping them to develop and subscribe themselves to better way they treat their workers and better ways for them to interact with people. Are you going to promote Millennium Challenge Corporation in your work, or will it be a part of your work at the State Department? Yes, absolutely, sir. Um, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, uh, the link, the Economic Bureau is the link at the State Department for the MCC, and I very much believe, as you have said, that good governance, transparency, um, and governments all around the world is of great benefit to us. I think we can't underemphasize at all the emphasis of soft power and diplomacy to prevent conflicts. It is very much in the American interest to build up uh, institutions such as the MCC, and I, I commit to you that it will be a priority of mine if confirmed for this position, Senator. 
Well, I think it's critically important, and I think your experience and the conversation we had yesterday encourages me of the high priority you've given to that. The gentleman I talked about in your introduction is here now. Dan Sullivan, Senator Sullivan, came and wanted to be a part of this hearing because he, you work with him now. He's a big fan of yours, and I'm going to let him say anything he wants to say. As long as it doesn't take longer than a minute and 26 seconds. <laughs> well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I just want to um, thank the committee for an opportunity to say a few words about uh, Manisha Singh. Uh, I think she is extremely well qualified for this position, given her vast uh, amounts of experience. Um, I'll just tell you a little story, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, I was a, a Marine who was coming off active duty 11 years ago, spent a year and a half uh, in the Middle East, and I came back and was nominated for the uh, Assistant Secretary position that Manisha Singh is getting ready to take if confirmed, which I'm confident she will be. And uh, when I got back, there was a Foreign Relations Committee staffer who was actually helping me prepare for my hearing, just like this hearing, 11 years ago, and it was Manisha Singh. So this is kind of karma, good karma, I would say. And then she later became my Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in charge of all trade and economic issues. So enormously important back then maybe even more important back now, so she's an expert in that area. I'm sure you'll get good answers from your questions about that. And then later, uh, I had the honor of having Manisha work for me in the Senate. Right now she does as a counselor and top foreign policy official. So I think um, she's very well qualified. I want to thank the President and Secretary Tillerson for the uh, great nomination, and she'll do a great job for the country, and I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to say a few words um, on this committee. I would never turn Ms. Singh down any request that she makes to talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> My ranking member, Ms. Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Carter, again, congratulations on your nomination, and I'm delighted to know that you have agreed to be considered for this post. In October of 2016, the International Civil Aviation Organization agreed on international carbon dioxide emission standards for aircraft beginning in 2020, and also on a system for offsetting future carbon dioxide emissions from aviation. Um, both U.S. airlines and aircraft manufacturers were part of um, and agreed to those um, negotiations and resulting agreements. And the emission standards would be implemented by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency regulations issued under the Clean Air Act. So if confirmed, will the United States continue to proceed with actions to implement these standards? Well, Senator, it's always great to see you again. And, um, uh, and I, I, I think this is a terribly important issue that you've brought up because, as you well know, there was some EU legislation in 2012. The uh, 2013 assembly basically outlined all of these uh, market-based measure requirements. So in 2016, as you stated, Corsia was supported. The carbon offsetting uh, uh, reduction scheme was supported by the United States and, and uh, all the other nations. And it is, once again, I, as I just said earlier about North Korea, the, the standards and recommended procedures for implementing Corsia are going to be considered by the council that is meeting on the 30th of October of this month. So basically, all the, the, uh, the nations on the council, including the United States in 2016, uh, approved Corsia. Now they'll repro re uh, be approving the actual standards 
and the procedures, and certainly have confirmed, I will keep your committee and, and the staff that I discussed this with, uh, uh, Josh and those guys, uh, completely up to speed on this, because it is a very, very important. And, and of course, as you know, Airlines for America, IATA, everyone is supporting this right now. So, uh, yes, ma'am. It's still not clear to me. Are you saying that you will continue to take the position on the part of the United States to support these standards? Well, the administration itself, as I understand it, uh, obviously I haven't been able to talk to people, but the administration hasn't taken a formal position yet. But as soon as I do hear about that, I'll, I'll get back to you. But as of right now, I don't, uh, I don't see why we won't, we won't be taking the standards and recommended procedures uh, seriously. So. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Um, Ms. Newstead, first of all, again, thank you for agreeing to be considered for this nomination. You clearly have um, the experience and credentials to, to do an excellent job. As you know, the position of legal counsel in the State Department carries a very heavy burden in terms of the issues which confront you. And I want to begin with asking you about a question that I ask another um, nominee for a Heights State Department post about, and I, I was not adequately satisfied with the answer that I heard, and that has to do with impoundment. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, the Senate Appropriations Committee that deals with the State Department's budget recently passed out a budget that um, was much more generous than that uh, recommended by the administration. and. There's been some speculation as to whether the administration would try to just not spend that money if it came to the department. So can you tell me whether you think the department could legally do that, or are you under obligation if the Congress has passed a budget to spend the money as directed by Congress? Well, Senator, thank you for that question. I'd be happy to address it. Um, in general, Senator, of course, uh, when Congress passes legislation and it's enacted through the president's signature, uh, there is a duty to spend that, that those funds in accordance with the, the terms that Congress has specified. I am, of course, aware, Senator, as you know, about the, uh, the federal statute that provides specific situations in which the administration can notify Congress, either of a need to delay or possibly a proposal to, to, to not spend funds as appropriated. Uh, and there are specific situations and, and standards that the statute lays out uh, and notification procedures to the Congress. So if I'm confirmed, it would be my intention, Senator, to apply the law as it's written by the Congress, including with respect to the, that, that statute. And, and I'm sure you're aware of the court that determined that Congress does have the responsibility to yes. pass the budget and that agencies have a requirement to spend those dollars. Yes, I am. Thank you, Senator. Um, I'm out of time, Mr. Chairman. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. I want to congratulate all our nominees. Ms. Newstead, thanks so much for uh, the meeting yesterday. Uh, you won't be surprised based on our meeting that I have a number of follow-up questions pertaining to the situation in Yemen. I explained to you my interest in this situa situation uh, surrounds uh, the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. Our relationship with Saudi Arabia, I believe, creates a real opportunity for the United States uh, to alleviate suffering in Yemen and also stabilize the region. I want to get some moral and legal clarity about a number of different matters, so I'm going to go very quickly here. I ask that you provide clear and concise, concise uh, responses to my questions, please. On July 18, I convened a subcommittee hearing on the four famines. 
I gave you a transcript of that hearing. Have you had an opportunity to review that? I have. Thank you, okay. sir. Okay. So you're familiar with uh, many of the facts uh, associated with this uh, horrific situation. I asked the Saudi-led about the Saudi-led coalition's pattern of impeding humanitarian assistance. I asked this question of Executive Director of the World Food Program, uh, David Beasley. He said the United Nations... Um, uh, he indicated that, uh, I quote, I think it's an abhorrent activity and a violation of not just humanitarian international laws. It's moral, morally is just a terrible thing. Now, Section 620I of the Foreign Assistance Act prohibits the provision of security assistance or assistance under the Arms Export Control Act, quote, to any country when it's made known to the president that the government of such country prohibits or otherwise restricts, directly or indirectly, the transport or delivery of U.S. humanitarian assistance. Do you agree that's what the statute plainly states? Sounds like a correct summary to me, yes, sir. Okay, thank you. Uh, based on your preparation for this position and for this hearing and based on the facts you've reviewed, is it your professional, your personal, uh, your legal judgment that Saudi Arabia has prohibited or otherwise restricted, uh, directly or indirectly, the transport or delivery of U.S. humanitarian assistance? Yes or no, please. Well, Senator, if I may, just before I answer that question directly, um, I think uh, I did appreciate our conversation yesterday, and I have had an opportunity to look initially at the materials. You I'm going to give you 10 seconds, please. Yes or no? Well, Senator, in order to be able to give you a legal judgment on that, yes. I would need to spend time consulting with the department's experts on both the facts so you, and legal standards. So you won't be providing a personal opinion. Uh, we'll, we will pivot to the Department of State, please. You're nominated to serve as the principal legal advisor to the Department of State on all legal matters, domestic and international. Based on your work with the department to prepare for this position and this hearing, what is the Department of State's current view on this question? Well, Senator, I'm aware that the department has responded to some inquiries that you've made before, um, but I believe there's more information that should be provided. And I can tell you, Senator, that if I'm confirmed, I would make it a priority to study the issue and consult with the department in order to provide additional information to you. So it's well known and broadly understood by those who, who, who immerse themselves in the facts that the Saudi-led coalition has deliberately and precisely bombed uh, U.S.-funded cranes that were supposed to be delivered to the major port of Hodeida. Uh, that port was to receive humanitarian supplies, again, in part funded by U.S. taxpayers. The Saudi-led coalition also bombed a World Food Program warehouse I mentioned to you yesterday uh, in Hodeida. Saudi-led coalition continues to delay shipments going into Hodeida for days of uh, that would uh, end up going to vulnerable Yemenis, which has created the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, or certainly exacerbated it. And according to the UN, the Saudi-led coalition continues to delay commercial vessels going into Yemen's Red Sea port. So in light of these facts, assuming they're correct, how can you or the department, um, would you defend that, uh, a, a, a judgment that uh, there would be no violation of the Foreign Assistance Act? Well, Senator, um, I think the facts that you've identified and the facts that we discussed yesterday, they certainly raise a very meaningful question in my mind about the, whether that the responsibilities under that provision have been triggered. And let me explain if I could, Senator, because I believe as we, as we discussed uh, that what that statute provides is that if the President or the Secretary become aware, are made, it's made known to them that a recipient of federal foreign assistance is essentially delaying or obstructing the delivery of assistance uh, then there, are, there is uh, an obligation to prohibit providing further assistance to that government. And as we discussed, an exception that the president can uh, find in the, in the national interest to waive that, in which case the notification to the committee is required. 
And Senator, I, I think you've certainly, we've, in our discussion, we've discussed many factors which would suggest. So I'm going to interject respectfully yes. because my time is running out. I commend you. You do seem to have a command of, of other provisions of the law. Uh, uh, indicating that the president can, under certain circumstances, waive. They would have to notify Congress. Is there any evidence the president has, has notified Congress? Well, Senator, that that's one of the questions I've been trying to look into and since we discussed this yesterday, and I, I am not aware that a notification has been made, and, and I agree with you from our discussion yesterday that that raises an implication as to what, the, what has the secretary, what determination has the department made. So I certainly, Senator, can commit to follow up on this question and, and try to get back to you with more information. Okay. Um, well, I'm a little over my time. I, I thank the chairman for his indulgence. I'll be submitting some uh, more fulsome questions uh, for uh, you to answer on the record. Also, one pertaining to violation of customary international humanitarian law, Rule 55. And uh, I, for one, am going to need clear and unambiguous responses to these questions from you and the department before we vote on your confirmation on the floor. Thank you so much, and I'm sorry for the rush. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. I want to keep the floor open, the committee open for a few more minutes for a couple of follow-up questions. I have one. I think there may be another one or two. So if it's okay with you, we're going to we have six votes coming up beginning at two o'clock at uh, two o'clock, three o'clock. So we'll have to adjourn by then. I know y'all want to get to your confirmation hearing or your markup as soon as we can next week or so ahead. So we'll make sure we get this finished today. But I have a question, Mr. Evenoff. Back when Benghazi, the Benghazi attack took place, and we had the tragic loss of a U.S. ambassador and two, secret, two uh, CIA personnel and other personnel representing the United States of America. Secretary Clinton, then Secretary of State, and, and President Obama had an accountability review board that reviewed everything that was done in Benghazi for security and protection and backup, et cetera. Uh, and it ended up making recommendations that we were $2.2 billion short of having enough security improvements in our embassies around the world to truly protect our individuals on on duty. Do you have, have you, have you seen that report? Do you I have, have any, do you know if anything's being done post Benghazi in the department to build up and beef up the security diplomatically and, and ambassador-wise around the world? Sir, it's, a, it's an excellent question and thank you for the question. Yes, I'm, I, having been in the private sector at that time, I too was uh, a little uh, concerned about what was happening to the department uh, security-wise. So when I was given this opportunity, the first thing I read was the unclassified ARB report. But also I read the best practices report that came out of it and also what DS has done. And two major things that have really struck me and uh, something I wish I had when I was in Pakistan in 9-11 during, during that time. One is that we have a high threat post division now that focuses on the 32 posts that need assistance at any given time. We didn't have that when I was back in 2001. That gives us a 911 call to allow the, the, the division to answer anything that the RSO would want or need for that high threat posting. So there's dedicated people that would go and help them for that. The second thing is that we put together a, a policy uh, uh, and operations planning group where we look at why we're going into a country that has hostile intention before we even get there. Why we even need to be there at that point. Can we build the security around it? So we made it transparent and we allowed all stakeholders to come around the table and give their thoughts and views on why we should go to country X 
and why we need the national security agenda to make that. If there's a risk, there should be a reward. If there is no reward and you have a high risk, then that, that venue will capture it. So those two things are the most important ones I've seen to include also the training centers that have, uh, uh, will open up in, uh, in Virginia. So I, I believe those three things are what we didn't have when I was there. Well, we always want to have our country in a position to protect those who represent us diplomatically around the world. And what happened in Benghazi was something we should react to, make sure it doesn't happen again to the maximum extent possible. Ms. Shaheen, do you have a question? I do. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, I want to follow up, Mr. Ivanov, because one of the things that we've seen recently is the Russians have um, harassed our embassy officials who are stationed in Russia. Do you have strategies for how you think we could respond to those kinds of activities on the part of a host country? Senator, it's a good question, and thank you for it. Um, we, we have seen this to the point where Russian intelligence services have broken into our, our, our residences in Moscow. They have actually poisoned our pets. They have harassed um, left uh, uh, nasty notes. I, I look at it this way, I, to, not to lower ourselves to that, but I know that the FBI monitors this here domestically, and we don't do anything to that, that at all to them like that. That's not, a, that's not who we are. But at that point, I think it should be known more publicly that this is happening. Before, it used to be a closed secret that our diplomats get harassed in Moscow and St. Pete, um, and that nobody really knew about that except the, the Foreign Service families themselves. If I knew, if this became transparent and the public, the general public knew that there's a hostile intelligence services going into our residences in, in, uh, on, on diplomatic grounds, then I, I believe that we, we get more pressure from Russia to back off. I think we've got to shine the light on the situation more. And so is that something that you would expect the... Um, Secretary of State to do, or who, who would do that um, shining the light? Sure. I, I, I think the, the Secretary has also demonst already demonstrated that with Cuba. The fact that we have identified uh, 15 people to leave uh, what they've done uh, uh, to us in, in, uh, in Havana, then we will then push them out, uh, out of Washington, D.C. I think this Secretary has an appetite to bring it to uh, uh, Secretary Lavrov, and, and t tell them to cut that out, that this is something that is not something that, that a first-rate country should do to another country like that. That's, I, I do believe the Secretary has the, uh, the, the, the ability and would want to do that. Thank you. Ms. Neustadt, President Trump has used language on multiple occasions um, that threaten North Korea with the use of military force. Specific legislative authority to use military force against North Korea has not been enacted. In your opinion, does the president have the authority to use military force to prevent North Korea from advancing its nuclear weapons program without a North Korean attack? Well, Senator, thank you for that important question. Uh, it, it's my view that uh, the law generally provides the president may act to defend the United States uh, and that includes, in some circumstances, acting preemptively when there's an imminent threat, uh, military threat, for example. That's certainly one scenario that could arise in the case of North Korea. Um, so 
in answer to your question, I would say my starting point would be to consider those authorities, uh, those constitutional authorities, and as a matter of international law. Miss um, Singh, finally, I had the opportunity when I was governor to take several trade missions overseas, and one of the biggest helps to us was the commercial service within the Department of State um, in terms of identifying partners to do business with and helping us. So can you talk about how you would approach um, that role of economic statecraft and how you would coordinate with the Department of Commerce in working with businesses abroad who want to who wanna improve their bottom line? Thank you, Senator. That's such an important issue right now because, as you know, we need to provide American companies with every opportunity to succeed and prosper globally. Um, and I've been lucky to be able to take part in the trade missions, such as the one you're mentioning when you were governor. Um, I think it's critically important that we continue these. Um, I would work closely with my counterparts at the Department of Commerce to identify markets not only in which our companies are doing well, but in which our companies are having problems. If there's a particular country where their companies are able to come into the United States and invest freely and our companies are suffering from regulatory barriers or um, restrictive approval processes that are prohibiting them from prospering in those markets, um, I would work with my counterparts at the Department of Commerce to take trade missions which would involve speaking to commercial officials in these governments at the highest levels, um, introducing, them, introducing them to our companies and saying, you know, our, our companies are having difficulty getting through your approval process, what can we do to help them? Um, and then I would also find partners uh, that might be interested in uh, partnering with our companies over there in the cases of joint ventures. Sometimes it's easiest to navigate commercial markets when you're doing so with a company who knows the landscape there. But I thank you for that question. I think it's critically important. Me too. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's a good thing we're dealing with diplomacy because I have a diplomatic challenge. Mr. Young would be next to be called on in the second round, but Mr. Kane has arrived and he has not asked any questions yet. So I'll tell you what I'm gonna do with the concurrence of everybody in the room up here, and any of y'all have an opinion, you can let me know. I'm gonna recognize Senator Kane for five minutes and then go to Senator Young for another five minutes. And if that my timing's right, that'll put us right at the time we gotta get out of here to go vote anyway. Does that sound all right to you? Thank you, Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, very diplomatic. So I appreciate you all and thank you for your service and congratulations on your nominations by the president. If I can start with Mr. Evanoff, I understand before I uh, came in, you talked a little bit about the uh, FASI facility under construction. Look forward to working with you on that. I wanted to talk to you about the, the FASI was responsive to one of the ARB uh, Accountability Review Board recommendations following Benghazi. There were 29 recommendations, 26 have been closed out. And the outstanding recommendations are ongoing upgrades and construction to embassy facilities. Um, talk a little bit about, to the extent you understand it, the department's timeline for completing these last three ARB recommendations so that they, they can be closed out as well. Thank you, Senator, for that question. I am uh, uh, I'm told that all basically, but out of the three, both of them have been, uh, all, two of them have been closed. One is still hanging because it leaves it, it, it belongs into the classified realm. And of course, I have not had access yeah. to that, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty much sure that we're going to be closing that out very soon. Okay. Well, that, that's something, should you be confirmed, that I'd want to come back to you on. Um, I w I've been worried about uh, the overall budget cuts. 
to the State Department as they might impact this most important function? I mean, of all the folks at the State Department, you're the one they should get a life insurance policy on because, I mean, I think it's really, really critical that folks be protected, especially given the increases, as you're describing, whether it's Cuba or Russia, the increases in some of the security challenges our folks face. So I want to reach back out to you about the last three. Hours. I would welcome that, Senator. Thank you. Thank, thank you for that. Um, to Ms. Singh, um, congratulations to you. And I wanted to ask you a question about cyber. Um, is the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs, is that in an appropriate position right now, do you think, to, to advance State Department equities around cyber threats in consultation with other um, uh, departments in the interagency process? Is, is, is this where some of the sort of that interagency work is your uh, department where this would take place? Well, well, thank you, Senator. Um, I think you might be referring to the Secretary's plans uh, for reorganization yes. in which it's been indicated that the cyber function will be moved to the Economic and Business Affairs mm -hmm. Bureau. Um, and I would answer your question to say I think that it is. Uh, there are complementary capabilities within the Bureau currently. For instance, as you may know, the International Telecommunications Office um, is managed by the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. We have a very strong component that deals with international telecommunications issues. Cyber fits hand in hand with that. You know, we deal with internet issues, uh, commercial issues. Many of those functions already exist within the Bureau. I think adding cyber would be very complimentary and we would uh, make sure to keep cybersecurity at the highest level of the utmost importance. Can you see organizationally if that is added within your section, are there you know, additional resources or kinds of personnel that you would need that you don't currently have? Well, Senator, uh, speaking from outside the department, right. I think I'd have to reevaluate that uh, when I, when I, if, if I was confirmed for the position. Um, but at this time, it's my understanding that positions are being reallocated from the Cybersecurity Office uh, to combine in the Bureau of Economic Affairs. And we might have to create a separate section uh, to look at where those capabilities would best fit, and I would review the existing resources, what could be reallocated and reprogrammed, specifically devoted to a new cyber office. If I felt that the resources were insufficient, I would certainly consult with the Bureau staff to figure out what we needed, whether it's personnel, monetary resources, or, or other sorts of things, and I would certainly request that from the Secretary. Thank you for that. Ms. Newstead, um, one of my passions on this committee is the question of authorized use of military force to sort of follow up a little bit on Senator Shaheen. I'm on the Armed Services Committee too. And it's interesting that the, the authority over AUMF questions is in this committee, um, and often we're talking about sort of the issues that pertain to it more in the Armed Services Committee. Mm -hmm. Senator Shaheen and I serve on both. One of the things that's been frustrating, and I just really want your commitment to cooperation, is in this administration, we've heard over and over again from key officials, Secretary Mattis, General Dunford, we would really like to work with Congress on a new authorization. But anytime there's any draft of anything put on the table, no, we like what we have just fine. So there's sort of a there's sort of lip service paid to the idea we would like to cooperate on a new authorization after 16 years. But when it gets down to any proposal, instead of saying, well, could you adjust this or that, Instead, what we hear from the administration is, well, we like what we have just fine, and then we aren't, we aren't really given a response. I'm going to continue to push this committee to tackle this issue, and I would like to be able to have a dialogue with both state DOD, the White House, about, you know, if we put proposals on the table, what's good, what's bad, and, and in the what's bad category, you could make it more 
um, acceptable to at least the administration, it's our prerogative ultimately, but it would be more acceptable as if you did the following. W would you commit to having that kind of back and forth dialogue and, and, and giving us your best advice on behalf of the administration on these questions? Senator, I'd be happy to commit to that. I'm aware of the work that you and other members of the committee have done on this issue, and I certainly would be uh, eager to yeah, be helpful and, and on behalf of the department if confirmed. All right, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Young. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for a second round here. I, I, I don't think I'll have to go qu quite as quickly this uh, go around Ms. Newstead, but um, let, me, let me turn to something uh, I had mentioned I'd, I was curious about, and, and it pertains to customary inter international humanitarian law rule 55, which says the parties to the conflict must allow and facilitate rapid and unimpeded passage of humanitarian relief for civilians in need, which is impartial in character and conducted without any adverse distinction subject to their right of control. That's it in its entirety. On June 28, at my direction, my staff asked the Department of State whether the Saudi refusal to permit the delivery of U.S.-funded cranes to the port of Hodeidah constituted a, a, a violation of, uh, of this rule. Um, what's your personal, professional answer to this question? Well, Senator, first of all, I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to that, and it is an important point, and we did discuss it briefly. I, I certainly agree with you that it's extremely important that we promote compliance uh, with the law of armed conflict by the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen for all the reasons that you've identified, sir, and I, you're at the prior hearing as well. Um, I do think that uh, the standard that you describe, describe raises many of the same questions as we were talking about in our, in our prior round uh, in relation to the Foreign Assistance Act. And I would only say that uh, it would be my, uh, my uh, expectation, if confirmed, that I would be able to dig into this issue uh, with the benefit of more consultation with the department to be more specific in talking to you about the, the, the ways in which those standards are implicated here. I guess your, your answer would be the same um, as it uh, relates to Saudi Arabia's compliance or non-compliance uh, based on the same fact pattern I'm referring to in Yemen. Uh, uh, compliance with Article 14 of the Additional Protocol 2 of the Geneva Conventions. Yes, Senator, I, I, it's in order to give you a legal uh, view that would really take account of all the factors, legal and factual and otherwise, I would want to have the opportunity to, to study that and consult more with the department. But, I, but again, I can, I can certainly say that I, I understand and agree with your, your focus on the issue. So if I don't appear frustrated, I am a bit frustrated. Took Almost three months after my staff asked that question, uh, pertaining both to uh, customary international humanitarian law rule 55 and article 14 uh, of the additional protocol two of the Geneva Conventions, three months for me to get an answer. And the answer that we received was, quote, the Department of State is not able to provide Senator Young with an advisory legal opinion, unquote. As a member of, of the Department of State's Oversight Committee, and based on Congress's Article I constitutional authorities, what do you think? Do you believe that's an acceptable answer? Well, uh, Senator, of course, I wasn't part of the discussions at the department, as you know. Yeah. But um, I would say that um, it would be my hope that if I am confirmed, we could, we could provide a, a answers to you more quickly. And, and while I would certainly want to consult on where uh, the department's practices have been in terms of any limits that the department feels it sure. needs to maintain. I would also seek to engage with you and your staff closely in discussing the, the legal standards and issues. And I know from our discussion yesterday, you had a number of, of particular questions about implications of what the department had and had yeah. done. It would be my, my expectation to work as closely with you as I could on those issues. Well, 
I don't think it's acceptable, period. Uh, but thank you. Um, let me lastly return to one final matter. Uh, will, you, will you please tell me how you define the term assistance in the Foreign Assistance Act, specifically telling me whether the definition of security assistance as, as defined in 22 U.S.C. 2304 applies to section 2378-1. If you'd like me to say those numbers again, I'm happy to. That's why I gave you the hearing transcript so you could familiarize yourself, and you seem quite conversant in the law, so I am impressed with that. <laughs> well, thank you, Senator. Um, well, uh, the, the definition, as I understand it, Senator, is quite broad under the Act. It, it is a question of law that, if, if possible, I would prefer to come back to you on with the benefit of more, of more consideration, uh, but I, uh, I believe that the, that the principle is quite broad, and its application to the facts here, as I said, is something that I would like, if possible, to have the opportunity to discuss with the Department. I believe it's broad as well, and, and so I, I will just uh, provide that and some other written questions to you uh, for your response. Thank you so much. Thank you, Senator. Yeah. Thank you. I yield back. Thank you, Senator. Thank you for your attendance today. Congratulations on your nomination to your siblings, mothers, fathers, significant others that all came. Thank you all for coming. Kids, don't forget the kids. That's right. And I want to thank the members for being here. We will report to the committee soon. You will be hearing shortly on a markup and hopefully a confirmation here, and hopefully a vote on the floor shortly after that. We appreciate your commitment to the country, your willingness to accept if appointed this nomination. We stand adjourned.